This is a Rooster Teeth production. In 1982, multiple people in the Chicago, Illinois area died after taking over-the-counter medication. After an interesting discovery, authorities were led to believe that foul play was involved. Today, we look at the historic case with real-world ramifications in effect still to this day, the Chicago Tylenol murders. This is Red Web. We're back, another Mystery Monday. I'm Trevor Collins, and with me as always, Alfredo Diaz. What you mean, Tylenol murders? I take Tylenol, what the hell? Yeah, Tylenol murders popping off in Chicago in the early 80s. Very reminiscent, actually, to the Monster with 21 Faces, if you recall that case, where the confectionaries in Japan were being poisoned. It's gonna be very reminiscent of that. Yeah, I was about to, when you were, um, you know, first uh, introducing this one, I said to myself, damn, what company is going to get screwed over here? Because, mm. uh, I mean, you know, even if it's someone, you, you know, I don't know, tampering with it, right? It's still going to be a hit. Right. Right. Accident or otherwise, it's going to be a hit. It's going to be some type of financial and, uh, I don't know, name hit, to be honest. Dang. Brand hit. I got to say, I'm just like very impressed by your gut checks. I'm loving it. Living for those instincts, man. I don't know. I'll just, you know, you, you, <laughs> you introduce it and I just, that's just how I feel. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely a direction we're heading for this episode. This one's going to have a, a unique breakdown because it is more true crime based. So we're going to talk about some of the incidents to try to build out this case here because authorities, if you look at it through the lens of the authorities, right? When this first happened, it looked like a bunch of unrelated cases. And we'll, we'll kind of dissect that a little bit and then go into the investigation, followed up with some suspects uh, where, man, there are some very compelling suspects as always. So I w- I'm really excited to get oh. your thoughts on those. But uh, I know what that's like because we've had some episodes where, you know, you tell me suspect number one, I'm like, that person definitely did it. Then you go suspect number two. And I went, okay, maybe that person's a little bit more guilty. (laughs) Uh huh. Uh huh. We might, Hey, we might see something like that. I don't know. So get your pen and paper out task force. We're diving into this one, collect your notes. Let's find the through thread. Uh, but yeah, without further ado, let's dive into some of the unfortunate incidents revolving around the uh, Chicago Tylenol murders. So this all began on September 29th of 1982, unfortunately with a 12-year-old named Mary Kellerman. This was in Schaumburg, Illinois, and Mary ended up having the symptoms of the flu and collapsed after taking an extra-strength Tylenol around 7 a.m. Mary, unfortunately, was pronounced dead only three hours later at 10 a.m. This is a pattern that you're going to see with a lot of the following incidents. There's going to, I know it's in the title, murder. It's going to be a bit of a darker episode, but yeah, this is a, a very interesting kind of pattern that you're going to see. Wow. So that's a, that's a pretty quick turnaround. Oh, yes. Uh, you, you take it around like seven flu-like symptoms and then within, I don't know, like three hours. Yep. I think the scary thing too is you're catching flu-like symptoms, right? I think, so if I'm reading this properly, I do mm-hmm. want to say, I think she had flu-like symptoms and therefore took extra strength Tylenol to help with that. Okay, got it. And then 
you know, there are some symptoms to, to discuss here, but but then, yes, collapsed within those three hours. Oh, okay, because I was about to say that's super deadly because, you know, if I took Tylenol and started having flu-like symptoms, i go, oh, man, I just caught the flu, and I wouldn't be rushing right. to the emergency room. Right. Well, let's take a look at some of these other incidents and see if there's any more similarities here, because a lot of these things happen on the same day. In fact, that same day, a postal worker named Adam Janis stayed homesick in Arlington Heights and then took some Tylenol around noon before dying in the hospital from a heart attack. So here we have it. We have someone who's ill, take Tylenol because of it. And our first symptom from after the Tylenol here is heart attack and also the, the unfortunate end. On that very same day, yet again, mourning their loss there at Adam's home around 5 p.m. later that afternoon, his brother Stanley and his sister-in-law, Teresa, both claimed to have headaches so they, as well, took some Tylenol. Stanley started having a heart attack when the paramedics arrived and Teresa began experiencing the very same symptoms. So the entire Janus family was taken to the hospital to check for carbon monoxide poisoning because the authorities are like, boom, something's up, this family is not doing well. And if it's hitting multiple of them, what is the most probable cause? Carbon monoxide poisoning does make sense. Stanley died later that night, and Teresa passed away two days later. So, wow, it's, yeah, it's fast acting. Whatever's happening here. So as of right now, like the kill rate is like a hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. Damn. On dopey. Yeah, because uh, I was about to say, if it was like, um, I was very much looking for the turning point, and by that I mean like the point where um, people would start to think that something was up, uh -huh. right? Because if I mean, if random people are getting heart attacks here and there, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of hard to be like, all right, something's up. We had three right. different people who had heart attacks today. I, you know, I don't like work at a hospital, so I don't, I don't know what the average is, but I wouldn't think that people would jump to conclusions like that. Right. Um, but a whole family, like I said, that's a turning point for me. Like we're a whole family, you know, you don't have group heart attacks i don't think that's a thing i don't know unless we end right. up doing an episode you know until we cover an episode of group heart attacks <laughs> um, yeah it does you know it's just one of those things where you don't hear about like all right damn this person had a heart attack and it trickled over to the other person and the and then the next like absolutely i would agree this is 100 percent a turning point now we know after the fact, we can we can look back with clarity that these are all related but you have to imagine the authorities at the time were like okay these three here in the janus home are probably related in some way, hence the carbon monoxide kind of investigation. But you're right, it's almost reminiscent of Death Note, right? Where a lot of people sporadically across a very big city are collapsing under various circumstances. And it isn't until a little bit later that people start to connect the dots here with the Tylenol. But you're right, this, this case, this house in particular, this household is really what helped authorities stitch this all together because Without this, I fear it would have just gone completely unnoticed. Um, but we'll we'll kind of go into those more specifics a little bit. Um, yeah, later on Death here. Note, fantastic anime. But exactly, I wasn't thinking like this would be the one that would break the case wide open. But I do feel like we would go back to this one mm -hmm. at some point in time to kind of like further push the investigation. I'd be very interested to see or, or just hear about the autopsy reports. You know, to see what like. What chemicals were used? Where the imbalance was? Um, oh, we'll get in there, man. Yeah, which I'm sure we will. But like, I'm I'm just very intrigued right now because yeah. it's just like, what the hell did they put in Tylenol? 
to cause a heart attack like this. Like, right. I know. I'm very, yeah, very, very. Yeah, you got your mind right on the, yeah, on the right tracks. But yeah, you know, ultimately, there is a lot of different people across the Chicago, Illinois area that are experiencing the same fate. Now, this is this is mind boggling, but it's still September 29th, that same very day. And in Winfield, which is a town just outside of Chicago, we have Mary Reiner, who had recently had her fourth child and took some Tylenol for the pain. But she as well collapsed soon thereafter, and she was pronounced dead the next morning. So we have a lot of people in a very short time window coming to their unfortunate demises, all ultimately linked to Tylenol, which authorities will put together eventually here. But a couple more cases, because I, I want to make sure that you have full scope of what's happening here. So real quick. Yeah. That's three cases so far. Uh, Let's see. Well, the family counts Five. As Oh, yeah, the family's one case, sure. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, if I was to count the family as one case, um, I believe you said so. The first case, did they buy Tylenol like that morning? I know the second case, they went and grabbed Tylenol that day. That'll kind of come out in the in the coming information in the investigation. Okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering, like, I'm very interested to know now, like, where that time period is and what 100%, stores, yeah. how many stores. And I'm sure, like, we'll dive into it. But yeah, I'm these just are just, the, just like, the incidents hmm, so far. Yeah. Like, how long have they had this bottle of Tylenol for? Okay. It's a great question. Very good question. Keep these in mind because we're, uh, we only have a few more incidents to cover so you, you can make sure you have that full scope and then we'll dive right into that investigation. But, uh, the next day, September 30th now, we have Mary McFarland who also collapsed after taking Tylenol during her break from work in Lombard. She passed away later that night in the hospital. Again, on the 30th, flight attendant Paula Prince took some Tylenol on her way home from a long flight and passed away in her Chicago apartment. Uh, Paula wasn't found until October 1st because there was uh, not a whole lot of people that knew her, but there was a wellness check. And so she was subsequently found. But individually, these deaths, like, like you kind of figured out, were, you know, they're not nat like they look like they're natural causes. They're not uh, obviously connected. Uh, but clearly the fact that uh, three happened in the Janus home is what tipped the, the investigators off to something being afoot. And that's where the investigation comes in. That's where the ball really gets rolling. So again, that investigation, let's talk about that. So one of the emergency responders, Chuck Kramer, invited public health nurse Helen Jensen to investigate the Janus home. There's that gut check, Fredo. Right on mm. point. Jensen looked at the food and the prescription drugs in the home to say, all right, well, what are they eating? What are they consuming? What, what, what can I see here? And she found a receipt for recently purchased Tylenol. Again, I love that gut check. Yep. So that Tylenol was recently purchased, I think within the day or two, and we'll know why in here in a second. Counted the pills in the bottom and noticed that six pills were missing. Boom. The exact mm. right amount for three people, right? The three people affected. Damn. So... She's putting a couple things together and saying, all right, at first, you know, the other investigators weren't believing that the Tylenol could have caused the deaths, but when they looked even closer at the bottles from, from the Janus family, as well as uh, Kellerman, who also was a victim here, they looked at the control numbers on the bottom of these bottles and found out that they were identical. Now, I was looking into this and the control number can indicate a couple of different things. Typically the manufacturer or whoever is delivering this Tylenol batch. So this is going to become a bit of a wrinkle later on and you'll see why, but uh, regardless, I think that this is a bit of serendipity because it tipped, it tipped more investigators off to the fact that the Tylenol was at the center of this. And regardless of it being a red herring or not, it turns out to have been a positive find. 
ultimately making people go, all right, let's look into the Tylenol is what's happening. Yeah, this is one of the very few things that we actually, like very few moments that we actually get some like happiness and rejoice because it's just like it all connected itself, right? Or right, it like, very right, quickly too. I'm gonna, you know, the authorities are on top of it. They're finding things out. There was the one specific family that went, mm, this is a little weird. Then they brought over a nurse and then um, you know, they checked the bottles of Tylenol. There was the exact amount missing. Like it's all mm-hmm. so perfectly lined up, leading us down this path where I'm not like questioning things. Exactly. Obviously, like I'm sure I will by the end of this episode. <laughs> but right now, it's very much like, yup, these dots are lining up. Right. This is like this is one of those mysteries where you have a lot of physical evidence. And you know, we ebb and flow. Sometimes we have ones that are more anecdotal, more story-based, more urban legend-ish. And then you have ones like this that are like, boom, here, here's the connect the dots sort of evidence leading you down the path. Yep. So we're looking at this Tylenol now. And cyanide was already on the table in people's minds due to the symptoms that people were having. So when he was analyzing these bottles, investigator Nick Pichos said that they actually smelled like almonds, confirming this suspicion. Now, if you're not familiar, when it comes to cyanide, it actually smells like almonds. Um, and so when he's taking a look at these Tylenol bottles and he gives them a whiff, boom, he's smelling almonds. We know it's up. Interesting. It smells like almonds? Yeah. I didn't know that. All right, I learned something today. Yeah. Apparently, like one in 10 people cannot smell cyanide, but it, I've, I've heard it to be said that, yeah, it, it does smell like almonds in some way. And I got to be honest, I don't know if I've taken a whiff of almonds, but... I'm sure I'd recognize it. I gotta, I gotta try and take a whiff of almonds now that I've got this new nose. Um, oh yeah, nose all healed up. Yeah, uh, there you go. Um, just to sidetrack for a second, I took a, I took like a really deep breath because like I'm healing and it's getting better. And I told Jackie, my girlfriend, to put her finger under my nose. And I took a deep breath and she was like, "What the hell? My nose doesn't get that much air." And I went, "Ooh!" <laughs> I was like, Ooh. Ooh. "Blast off!" Baby. I might be, uh, be, uh, you know, the. Uh, bloodhound of the task force you know i might <laughs> sniff out the evidence at this point i might have a new position this the great smell investigator <laughs> i love that but yeah that's interesting to to know i also do like going back to what you said earlier the um i guess like the, the barcodes or something like that the yeah the control uh the control numbers yes yeah that they're all those all line up too um that being said like interesting because like i don't know maybe it's just me and I would never do something like this. But if I was to, I would, I don't know, I think it'd be pretty obvious that like, don't do it all in one store. Don't do it all in one batch. You know what I mean? Like, well, that's the thing. That's the thing, man. We're going to dive into that. And like, and okay, that's why okay. I'm, I'm I, I was talking to Jillian a little bit about this. Now, it's hard to say, man, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll get to it. Let me like, we're almost there. But like, I think it was serendipitous that they found these these identical control numbers because that is technically a wrinkle that goes in the face of of some uh, some later findings, I should say. Ooh, okay, yeah. so it actually kind of works again. Okay, yeah, it's like I don't know. We'll we'll get there. It's it's kind of interesting, but um, ultimately, like you know, now they're on the track of the cyanide. They smell it. They confirm it, and this confirmation of cyanide involved led to the other four deaths being connected to an overall crime. So boom, very quickly, like you said, the Janus family, everything that happened there led to an investigation, and that then looped in the other cases to say, okay, there's something bigger happening because each of the victims that were found to be connected to this took a gelatin capsule of Tylenol that had been injected with enough cyanide to kill 
a thousand people. Wow. It doesn't take a whole lot of cyanide to put down a person, but like, this is probably why some people were dropping within the hour, or no, I should say hours. So there's so many interesting things there to kind of like break down. One, all right, I'll be honest. I was like, are they dipping these pills in cyanide? No, they're the gel pills. Okay, that makes sense. Because mm -hmm. we were talking about like the 80s, right? Yes, 82. Like, I'll be honest. I didn't, I didn't think that they had gel pill technology in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'll be real with you guys. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I was born in 89, but see. I didn't think that gel pill technology existed back then. Um, that being said, I thought they were like dipping it. Um, Holy crap. Do you want to take a gander or a guess? I don't know. Gander. Take a look at my wares. <laughs> take a guess at when you think, I'm sorry to interrupt, when you think gelatin capsules were invented. This is going to blow everyone's mind. Blew okay, my mind. So we're talking 80s already. Yeah. Late 60s. I'm thinking like really open your mind. Really open your mind for this guess. Oh, damn. Are we talking like the 30s? Yes. But the wrong 30s. The gelatin capsules were invented in 1833 18. by oh a French pharmacist. God. That's amazing. Also, I mean, gelatin, wow. gelatin ain't new. Let's be real. But I mean, like, it really, I didn't it, think I about, didn't, you know, gelatin okay. capsules, you know. All right. You hear it in all these ads, like, don't worry, it's fast-acting gelatin capsules. It'll get right in your system. Like, I, Those, I, honestly, I the ads got me because the ads made it feel like... Brand new. I like, I don't know, like, you know, a decade ago that it was just like, oh, my God, this is new technology, fast-acting, right. like, whoa. And I don't know. Or, uh, I'm assuming maybe gelatin capsules are more expensive, but I didn't grow up with gelatin capsules. Right. <laughs> to I swallow up, those pills. And I grew up with those solid guys. Usually a lot of those, those chalky chewables that make yep, you throw the chalky up. stuff. Um, but yeah, so okay, they're, they're gel. Like, yep. Also, I didn't realize how potent cyanide was. You said a thousand people? Those gel capsules aren't that big. Not that big. And I'm sure they didn't replace it, it 100%, 100p with, uh, with cyanide. So. Yeah, right? They didn't hundo p like, suck out the uh, the good medicine <laughs> juice and then put cyanide <laughs> in it. I don't, you know what I mean? Okay, so here, I looked it up. The, the lethal oral dose of cyanide salts is between, obviously depending on the size of the person, the age, between 200 and 300 milligrams. Ain't a lot. Whoa. Yeah, so so not a whole lot needed to uh, to put down a person. Man, there are poisons out there that you only need a couple grains, like a sand grain size to is... uh to take down an elephant. It's there's some scary things out oh, there. That's terrifying, man. Yeah. Yeah. But um as you can imagine and as your gut check was very correct to assume, Johnson and Johnson who is the parent company to McNeil Consumer Healthcare, who then owns Tylenol. So ultimately, the grandfather company to Tylenol quickly recalled all Tylenol across the United States, totaling about 31 million bottles. They stopped that's, the product. That's big that's damage. That's gotta be a big hit. That's a lot big of hit. damage. Also, side note, it's so interesting. Like you'll, if you like look up charts of what companies own other companies, you'll just be like, wait, I didn't know that cookie was owned by that company that made that cereal and right that. So it's like it's insane how they have like these different sub brands oh yeah there's like five companies that own everything at this yeah point. exactly they're all owned by like five companies and yep. it's like, wait i thought they were competing but they're actually in the same tree and it's, mm -hmm. it's wild they fooled us with their ads Dude, but seriously 
big damage happening here, and they stopped, not only did they recall 31 million bottles, they stopped production of Tylenol flat. They replaced a bunch of bottles for ones with solid pills, right? So that way they got rid of mm -hmm. all the gelatin capsules. You can't really inject a solid pill necessarily. Uh, it's a lot harder to tamper with, I'll just say that. And they also offered a $100,000 reward for any information from anybody who might have seen something or had any, obviously, any information on what went down here. Right. Now, it's estimated that when it comes to the damage, this cost the company $100 million, which, very loose calculation from the early 80s to oh. around today would be somewhere north of a quarter billion dollars, right? Probably $265 million with inflation, something like that. Oof. So not, not, you know, that's not small. Chicago police also drove around the city with a speaker announcing this recall. So you can imagine like they're desperate to make sure that no one's getting hurt. But, you know, if you want to think of it through the cold business lens, you also got basically a super loud speaker going, don't buy Johnson and Johnson products. Like, I mean, I don't I don't want to sit here and focus on the, the company side. Go around with a speaker. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're desperate to stop people from having Tylenol because people are just dying very yeah, quickly yeah. and uh and and all of these people are dying so quickly that they had no idea that there was a broader crime at play and so props to the chicago police for driving around and saying you know what let's in case they're not seeing the magazines the news articles the headlines whatever let's just bust it out into the city very smart i think many people became paranoid because of this now i i understand that you know uh, there's going to be some fear that is instilled because of this i think it's a very delicate balance that you have to strike between informing everybody and scaring everyone. But a lot of people did become paranoid that they had been poisoned, right? Because, hey, I had a headache. I took my Tylenol. So a lot of calls started flooding in to poison control centers, to the police, etc. And by October 5th, the FBI and the Attorney General joined the investigation. So this went national. Investigators tested 10 million capsules across many different bottles That's of Tylenol. The oh my God, the time, the money, the manpower. Yup, lot of time, but hey, I, I'm happy they're taking this seriously and really trying to get in here because testing 10 million, they found a total of 50. 50 pills across eight bottles contained cyanide. Now that that is a very small sample of that 10 million, but I mean, I'm grateful that they sampled so many to really hone in on, okay, yeah. Now we know where this is coming from, which bottles, which stores, whatever. I, I love how the authorities have like reacted to this and, and the companies, obviously the companies are going to react because there's money on the line. <laughs> like sure. They're, they're, I mean, granted, you know, they lost a ton of money. Yeah. I think it's a big tell that only like 50 were found because if it was something where it was hundreds, maybe even thousands, then I would think that this issue, not to rule this out completely, but I'd have to be like, okay, this issue is happening somewhere further up the chain, probably right. in the production line, right? Or in the uh, the shipping. Um, if it was like thousands or hundreds of thousands, I don't think there's like one pharmacist that's like going through right. every single bottle. I mean, you probably don't even have that much Tylenol that's shipped to you. Mm -hmm. Also, that'd be so, it'd be, I feel like it'd be so easy to pinpoint that. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, this this tells me that this is very, like, very isolated somewhere further down the chain as opposed to, like, you know, the head of Johnson & Johnson. There's yeah, millions Mr. of Jansen. pills. Oh, my God. This is going all the <laughs> way to the top. <laughs> right. I mean, that's exactly right. If you, if you saw how many there were, if there was tons, 
you would have to wager that this was a huge effort. And the reason why I just want to say, uh, in case you hadn't listened to our Monster with 21 Faces episode, uh, the reason why I'm focusing on the company damages is not so much that I have empathy for a cold, hard business, but because that was one of the motivating factors for very similar crimes that have happened like this. So it's very much on the table that, like you said, Fredo, that this could be an attack on a company uh, more so than an attack on people. But I don't want to rule out either situation at this juncture. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, 50 pills, um, not a great thing that any of them are poison, but it does super, super help drill down a couple of the investigation arms, right? So of these eight bottles that were tested and found positive for cyanide, five of them were from the victims of the crime, right? We had the Janus family the and the other handful of individuals who I uh, discussed earlier. Now, thankfully, because of the recall, two of these bottles, two of these eight bottles, had been purchased by people, but were returned because of that recall. So, two families, or two individuals at minimum, were saved due to this Whoa. recall. Yeah. I mean, and the, the death rate seems at 100% still at this point. Yes. So, it's safe to say that they saved their lives. Yes. I mean, unless they didn't take it, but yeah, I mean, regardless definitely saved some lives there and and the eighth bottle was still actually on the shelf waiting to be sold so thankfully very uh expedient response here stop this stuff i mean i know there's some uh, authoritative negligence we've covered before right but Mm -hmm. um sounds like so far so good we're responding we're getting things factually outlined and figured out obviously this case is unsolved and that's why we're discussing it but we'll we'll get into why that is uh in the suspects here but by this point in the investigation the police had a lot of leads 1200 to be exact or so (laughs) not not exact but they had they had about 1200 leads yeah that's oh my god and i mean you know that's just the authorities being really uh thorough um any i'm assuming anything that came across their desk was going to be looked at um yeah i and by by this point i should be almost numb to this number because it's just like they're hundred leads thousands of leads uh but i just man the the process of that it's exhaustive it's exhausting but also how do you not i'm gonna use the word numb again how do you not grow numb to all these different leads right to the point where like you're you're you're, we might miss something because obviously it's it's their job they're professionals but i can imagine like trying to give 150 percent on like a thousand leads yeah, dude, right? that's that's a really good question. But honestly, when I think about it, that's a good point. But also, you almost need to be numb to each lead because if you become emotionally invested, you could be oh, barking the up balance. the wrong tree. Yeah. You know? yeah, you might bake in some bias. And I actually re- recently watched for the first time Zero Dark Thirty. And it's it's all about the story of Osama Bin Laden. If you haven't seen it, whatever. It's it's a fascinating film. And it, and it outlines... Um, I'll just keep it brief. One of the investigators kind of pursuing leads and this person wouldn't give up their lead. And sometimes it's for good and sometimes it's for worse. But, you know, it, it just kind of brings to mind what biases might be in play when when passion comes into the play, when when you're adamant that a certain person is involved. So, I mean, you almost have to be a little bit numb when it comes to this number so you can look at everybody on a level playing field. But mm-hmm. you're, you're not wrong, though, because much like any other cases, we have a lot of people calling in. This is super national at this point, not just Chicago, it's all over the United States and various news articles, headlines, etc. And many people are calling in, trying to report information on what they know, what they've seen, what they've experienced. 
but also, as always, we have a lot of uh, ludicrous people out there trying to claim the crime. Wild, man. It's wild. Just and I almost feel like insane. I don't know what the motivation is there. I can see a wide swath from, listen, I don't want to assume, but there's a wide swath of reasons why someone might try to claim a crime like this. I don't know what you do with something like that, though. Do you arrest them because they're trying to claim a crime? Do you, do you, I, that's wild. I don't know what you do with that outside I, of investigating, but. I haven't, yeah. People would just be like, I did it. And for why? <laughs> for what reason would you want to be a part of that, man? We're going to put you in medium prison then. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, if you're out here admitting to crimes, whether you did it or not, like, I don't know. Again, a lot of motivations could go into that. Uh, I won't I won't assume here. But but anyway, Johnson and Johnson were able to find out that the tampering didn't occur in their factories. Like you kind of mentioned with a, mm -hmm. such a small footprint, it might not be that way. Each victim bought the Tylenol from different stores. So we're starting to lose a thread here. And okay. these stores also bought their batches from different distributors. So boom, oh. not at the factories, not at the manufacturers, not at the distributors and at different stores. So it's very hard to start pinpointing this down. And this is where the wrinkle comes in because the control number, again, due to my limited understanding of medicine and how that all goes, tends to reflect the manufacturer or the distributor in some way. And if we're saying here that none of these came from the same location, it seems like was the control number something that was just a happy circumstance that tipped us off in the right direction because a lot of these products came from facilities from Texas or Pennsylvania and the contaminated pills did not come from the same place ultimately. So that's where I wanted to be honest about that little wrinkle. Yeah. But it's true that it was part of the reasons why people started looking closer at the Tylenol. So I didn't want to neglect it. Damn. I mean, so different locations and areas. So that's, yep. it's not, most likely it's not a person driving to different states. And I'm assuming the different locations are also mean different. No, no, Chicago. So different cities. So yeah, that's that's the counties. unifying factor is, okay, so different distributors, different stores, different manufacturers, nothing on the Johnson & Johnson side on the tampering with their factories or whatever. Yeah. So the main element that wraps us all together is the Chicago area. Now from that, you, I, I think your gut check is gonna be very close. So I would, I would love to hear your, your, uh, your guess as to maybe where the investigators turn to next. I mean, like, my mind is racing with a different, a whole bunch of different thoughts because, like, I also, like, because there's a control number, so it could be through that specific distributor. Like, there's still so much I don't know, right? Like, right. It could be one distributor that distributes solely to Chicago. So, in that way, you also want to take a look at that. There could be, oh God, I'm so, like, I've listened to so many, I've been a part of so many episodes, like, yeah, it could be. I don't know if there's like some overseeing physician uh, for the area or like a board. Um, obviously, it could just be someone. Mm, I mean, just it's over the counter tunnel. There's a lot of different possibilities. Um, I I love to hear your mind racing, and I but I hate to like keep yeah, you keep you wondering, yeah. but because no, 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 like just roll with it. Because, yeah, because, yeah, no, but right now because now I'm spiraling, I'm spinning. Yeah, let's <laughs> pull you straight. out of that. Let's <laughs> pull you out of that tailspin, baby. Because investigators were very astute here. From all of this information that they had gathered, they started to believe, okay, that a person or a group of people that were responsible for these poisonings must have purchased the Tylenol, okay, taken it home, injected the cyanide into the gel capsules somewhere, maybe at home or whatever, 
and then went back to the convenience store shelves to replace them, put them either on the shelves or return the product and say, I don't want this anymore. And there you have where that wrinkle arises because if they bought two from the same location that were IE from the same distributor or manufacturer and then replaced them at different stores, you might start to say, but these stores have different sources. Why are the control numbers the same? It basically adds a, a lot of issues when it comes to tracking down yeah. the path. So, but basically the theory is now someone bought the Tylenol, whether from one store or several, and then intentionally took them, tampered with them, and returned them, whether to the same store again or a different store. That's that what we're looking at. Absolutely insane. Very I deliberate. I didn't think about these loose return policies. Slip, slip right past me. Well, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, I mean, you're swiping credit cards. Maybe you got cash or whatever. But like, if you're returning this stuff, go to these stores and be like, did anybody return Tylenol? I think what really happened is, is that they just kind of walked in and put it back on the shelf, you know? So who was to stop you from just leaving something on a shelf? It'd have to be that, right? Even then, though, check those tapes because in the, this person has gone back a handful of times. That's true. And that's where, you know, oh man, you're right on the, you're always right ahead of the game. But like, you know, it is uh, the early 80s. And so CCTV is mm. not very prominent. Mm. You're not going to get a whole mm. lot of yeah. uh, closed capture television. Put or on imagery. a hat and it's over. Yep. But this is where my mind kind of goes like, dang it, early 80s. I don't know when barcodes came into play or when unique numbers were attributed to different products. But like today, if, if you scanned a product, right, beep, bought it, mm -hmm. and then you put it back on the shelf. Didn't tell anybody. Somebody else bought that thing. You could then look probably in the system and be like this identical product, not not even just like this Tylenol versus that Tylenol. I mean, this bottle was purchased already. I, I, I would have to imagine that that would be possible to track today. Yeah. Doubt it was possible in the 80s. But that was like where my mind went was like, well, dang, figure out who bought it. Look on the CCTV. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dang it. But here's the thing, here's the interesting part, is that these bottles would have to be bought and tampered with and returned in a very tight timeline because the cyanide would eat through the gelatin capsule. It would probably only take like about a day. So they would have to be bought, tampered with, returned, bought, consumed, all within a loose 24-hour window. So you can start to say, all right, well, we know CCTV is limited at the time and the DNA testing is not as advanced as it is today, but there's at least a security camera in one of the Walgreens that is uh, kind of at the center of this. Okay, so Paula Prince, who we talked about earlier, purchased her Tylenol at this Walgreens and there is a, in fact, a photo of her in the line ready to purchase this. And what's interesting is, and maybe people are re reading between the lines, it's hard to say, but in this photo, in the back, there is a bearded man who is looking directly at Prince, and some believe oh. that perhaps this is the killer. So, it's a security photo, it's not a video, it's, uh, there's very limited information, but we're extraordinarily lucky that this Walgreens has even this. And if you want to see this photo, we're gonna, as always, post it on our Twitter and social, at RedWebPod. You can check it out. The arrows are pointing to the uh, to the people that we're talking about, but it's hard to say. You know, it also could right, just be a gentleman yeah. looking out the window. I mean, that's a that's a glance from a, from far away. I don't know. Very far. Oh no, like that's very a, pixelated too. Yeah, uh, that's like across the counter. I mean, if, yeah. if that if that look is suspicious, then I'm 
suspicious every time I yeah, walk out. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't go out in public anymore. Yeah, God. Um, well, let's just say this guy wasn't identified, nor was he like interrogated because he looked the wrong way. But looking back, there is a bit of hindsight happening in this identification here in this photo to to tease some of the suspects. Like this might come back, and it is interesting. But there's definitely a lot of room for uh, well, reading between the lines. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Well, the police continued the uh, investigation and they started to interrogate former employees of Johnson & Johnson because it may have been someone, as you kind of indicated, somebody with a grudge against the company. And that could be measured by the fact that Tylenol was the leading pain medication at the time. They had 35% market share. So basically, that's to say, out of 100% Damn. of the people taking pain medicine, 35% of them were using Tylenol. That dropped steeply to 8%. So, Whoa! Yeah. So there is entirely a possibility that someone was trying to damage the product and as opposed to making this a personal thing, right? Who, who's to say? But ultimately, this didn't really lead anywhere. They didn't really find anybody of interest. Damn. Damn. Like, it's just so insane. Yeah. One person can drop the, the, the power of a company and just like that. Just like that, man. Scare. The, the, the fear that you can instill in people is uh, it's powerful and, I mean, frightening to say the least. But the investigation continued, right? They uh, they went to the convenience stores and they started to interview everybody at the stores. They even interviewed convicted shoplifters of those stores in particular to see if they were involved in some way. But what's interesting, ultimately, when, when uh, these investigations were underway, is that Illinois Attorney General Tyrone Fawner uh, said that some of the poison capsules were injected more artfully than others. So it's possible that they're they're implying that there might be more than one person, that someone is maybe doing this a little bit better than another. But I would also say that this is a pretty interesting task that maybe they just got better at it over time or, or they were in a hurry because of the tight timeline that maybe they just like were messy in some. And I, I don't really know what artfully means, probably a little less distinguishable. But this is where the conversation really starts to say, okay, well, maybe... Maybe there is more than one person happening here. I mean, pro man, I mean, this is swing either way, right? <laughs> because it could just be like, yeah, they got better over time or um, they're on a time crunch. Interesting. Yeah, I, I guess you'll never, as, as of right now, I, it's hard to tell because I don't know if it was like, ah, man, like what the differences were in the pills that were mass masterfully crafted as opposed to the ones where like, Right. Or kind of, uh, I don't know, pretty torn up. Yeah, I guess like the, just the main point here is that the Illinois Attorney General is essentially opening the door to the possibility, officially, of more than one person. Yeah, I mean, you definitely have to mark that as a possibility. Mm -hmm. But there's just so many factors. But no, I, yeah, for sure. Now, to wrap up the investigation conversation, as it went along... Funeral dates were starting to become highly publicized because the next hunch that investigators had was that, you know, maybe if they put out these these funeral dates, these locations for plots and whatnot, that the perpetrator might show up at one of these to witness what they had done, because that tends to be, you know, part of that kind of killer mindset. They want to see their works, I suppose, in some sick way. And in 1983, they released the grave location of the youngest victim, who was Mary Kellerman, and that was published in a newspaper, and they 
put 24 hour surveillance on that location for months on end. Ultimately, nobody showed up. And so this kind of this thought process went cold, but it was interesting that they tried that. I think that would that was quite smart. Yeah. Different tactics, different things. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Well, hello again. It is the gap in between the mysteries where I, Trevor Collins, like to talk to you again. I didn't change my name legally. That's what we always learn here since the beginning of the podcast. My name is the same, but I like to talk to you directly into your eardrums about a few things going on. Thank you for listening and for sharing the podcast. I just want to say that directly to your eardrums. From me to your eardrums, I wanted to say that. But we also now finally have the Red Web Task Force merch fully in stock. Logistics be damned, we made it happen. Uh, so if you want to support the show directly, I think you guys already sold out the pins again. So I'm knocking on the e-commerce store to say, let's get some more badges in there. Let's refresh the pile. Uh, but we have those hoodies, hats, shirts, posters, you name it. It's all there if you want to represent the task force out on the streets. We would greatly appreciate it. It all goes directly to our show to help support us. But as always, I also have some fantastic sponsors that I want to talk about that also help support us. Red Web is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast that you definitely should check out. The show covers a wide range of fascinating topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. I recommend checking out Jordan's conversations with CoffeeZilla, a YouTuber who exposes guru scammers, and with Rene DeResta, who studies what turns ordinary people into conspiracy theorists. They're very fascinating topics, and if you like what we talk about here on this show, I think you're going to find those particular episodes quite intriguing. But there's an episode for everyone. No matter what you are into, they cover the whole spread, every topic under the sun. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Fantastic story. I don't think I'd be able to survive that anxiety, but I'd also just not forge art. What can I say? I'm not a very good artist. We really enjoy the show and we think you will as well. So check it out because they have so much to offer. Check out the jordanharbingershow.com slash start for some episode recommendations if you don't like what I'm putting down for you. Or you can just go search The Jordan Harbinger Show wherever you get podcasts. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. Again, search that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Red Web is also sponsored by Upstart. Paying off debt can feel like an uphill battle. High interest rates can keep you in an endless debt cycle. But Upstart can help you get ahead of it. Upstart provides you with a fast and easy way to pay off personal debt, and it's all online. Unlike other lenders, Upstart considers more than just your credit score. They consider your income, your employment history for a fuller picture, and that lets them offer smarter rates with trusted partners based on you. And with a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 and $50,000. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash redweb. That's upstart.com slash redweb. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you, hey, from Red Web. Uh, loan amounts will be determined based on your credit score, your income, and other certain information provided by you to your loan application. So you can go to upstart.com slash redweb to check it out. Debt can be serious, so be sure to do your research before applying to any services. I just wanted to say that here at the end, because your money is your life, and it matters. So be mindful and do your research. And with that said, let's jump right back into the mystery. 
So those are the core efforts of the investigation. Now, as you can imagine, this became widespread news and it did actually inspire a lot of copycats. So I wanna spend some time talking about some of those copycats to see maybe how we might gain some insight into potential suspects or other culprits that are at large maybe doing the same thing, but. Damn, dude. Obviously should have crossed my mind at this point uh, mm -hmm. with how many episodes we filmed, but I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Like the, the, the authorities, the news media, obviously the, the news media for more selfish reasons, but like putting information out there just to make, you know, just to make sure people are aware and sure. people are trying to be safe. And they're also trying to grab, you know, if you've seen anything or you've heard anything, but it's just so, I guess, just like annoying how that obviously, yeah, brings up copycats that go, oh, like they got away with it. Maybe I can. Yeah. And it's like, oh, my God. Oh. Right. It's like a double edged sword. It's so unfortunate. Oh, yeah. And it's and it's it's extraordinarily unfortunate because after about a hundred thousand articles were written about this just in the United States alone at this time. The FDA then reported that there were 270 suspected copycat crimes within the month after the initial murders. So, man, I don't I'm I'm almost left speechless. That's like what that's the? spooky as hell, man. That's sick. That's yep. honestly like disgusting. Um mm -hmm. they they also use Tylenol, sometimes other drugs, sometimes different poisons. But yeah, let's let's talk about some of those copycat cases and maybe maybe we'll glean some insight that will help us in the initial crime or perhaps elucidate us further. But in 1982, right, that same year in Detroit, Michigan, now this is where we really start to expand upon how this is relevant to this day. But in Detroit, there were razor blades and nails that were found in hot dogs. Uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a 14-year-old child got sick after drinking chocolate milk with sodium hydroxide in it. And one of the notable copycats that I kind of want to outline was Stella Nickel who seems to have gotten away with her crime as well. But her husband, Bruce, collapsed after taking Excedrin on June 5th of 1986. So this is almost four years after the Chicago murders went down, this whole case. And it's considered, or Bruce's death was considered death by natural causes. However, on June 11th, there was a woman named Sue Snow who also collapsed after taking Excedrin, leading investigators to reconsider the cause of death to say, hey, didn't something like this happen about four years ago? Let's look yeah. a little closer. Now, apparently, Nickel had poisoned both pill bottles and believed that if her husband's death was considered accidental or natural, that she would get more insurance money. So this was, that was the motivator, insurance. What the hell, dude? Right. And she poisoned other bottles, so that way it would look a little bit more like a widespread crime, that because she's the wife, she wouldn't look like the key suspect. And, they, and people would start to say, oh my gosh, this Chicago person is back yeah. again, and that maybe she could then slip under the radar. But it's actually that very same thought process that led her to become a suspect, because they went, wait a minute, haven't we seen this before? And they started looking at it closer. Uh, this happened again as well in 1993. An insurance salesman from Tumwater, Washington named Joseph Meeling attempted to murder his wife for insurance money as well, putting a capsule of cyanide in a bottle of Sudafed. Much like Nickel, he tried to make sure it looked closer to the Chicago case by putting five more tampered packages on shelves in stores. His wife ultimately survived, but unfortunately, uh, his actions killed two other individuals. Damn, dude. 
Yeah. And so now we have a little bit of a glimpse into the minds of people that would maybe do this crime. And so now you start to say, okay, maybe maybe it was personal rather than at J&J. Was this someone related to one of these victims? And were they looking for insurance money? Were they looking for revenge of some nature? It starts to kind of refocus maybe the direction of the investigation. Yeah, this is like so many years later. Yeah. And and the reason why, you know, this is super interesting. I mean, it's already interesting, but the fact that I'll just be straight. I think that because of the Chicago Tylenol murders, it increased the awareness or the idea that things and foods could be poisons, much like Halloween candies. It increased or popularized the scare that Halloween candies could be poisoned. Now, whether that was actually happening or not, whether that was a rumor or not, that is still a very popular concept to this day. And so it is widely connected that the Chicago Tylenol murders either brought awareness to or created the idea of poisoning Halloween candy. And I know that that's something that everybody's aware of. And so it almost it almost makes you go, oh, wow, I had no idea. That's yeah, that's a cool little like tidbit of information, because like you said, I mean, I knew about it and I knew that like it was, you know, hey, check your candy. Yeah, right. This is me. Look, I plan on having kids. Uh, a little bit further down the line, I just don't know if like if I can have them do the whole like yeah they'll they'll do Halloween but candy like, from strangers candy from strangers man you never know it takes one time. Here's what you do: you take them out, you you do the candy from strangers business, and then like Indiana Jones, you do a little bit of a the swap swap. Yep. So you have the candy prepared at home that you bought safely in the packaging. But hey, I don't know, man. I'm not trying to scare everybody here, but. This, these Tylenol bottles were all bought in stores. Yeah. So dang it, man. <laughs> you got to yeah. make your own candy. But then again, you, I kind of, yeah. That, that do you live in fear, though? Just like, do, yeah, do you live in fear of everything that you're doing? Because, right. like, sure, every, you know, someone can just replace a bag with some bad stuff. Right. You, gotta, you know, the odds of that are, are low. Not impossible. But, yeah, you don't want to live in fear. Right. But it's like, it's deeply fascinating that something from our childhoods that we were aware of, you know, poisoning candies, spiky things, razor blades and candies, kind of, I mean, again, it's hard to say whether it's the origin, the Chicago Tylenol murders were the origin of this, or if it simply popularized that concept to, to raise awareness. But it certainly spread that fear. And sometimes I think it's a little bit of fear is good to be to, to be had so you are aware of the yeah, dangers out there. Exactly. But with that said, the copycats aside, all of this coalesces into the conversation regarding some of the key suspects. Now, there are some pretty strong suspects here. I don't want to sit here and pretend like we can accuse anybody because we don't know, but we're going to position these suspects as best we can with the information that is made available to us. So with that said, let's dive into our first suspect, James Lewis. So, on October 6th of 1982, Johnson & Johnson received a handwritten letter. This letter claimed that they were the killer, whoever wrote this, and said that they would continue poisoning pills until Johnson & Johnson sent them $1 million to their bank account. Immediately suspicious, by the way. Yeah, send this to my bank account. You won't know who I am. Yeah, how? How are you going to get away with that? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, obviously J&J was like, Okay, and they contacted the police, and despite the ransom note telling them not to, they went to the FBI, okay? As you would. The FBI found fingerprints belonging to an accountant named James Lewis. 
Now, let's talk a little bit about James, because he had a troubled past. Of course. Yeah, when he was a kid, he had chased his adoptive mother around the house with an axe. He had also supposedly broken his father's ribs at one point. He was also later diagnosed with schizophrenia after overdosing on a medication, but he claims that he did that in order to avoid the draft. Hard to say. Mm. He was also suspected of murdering his first client, Raymond West, after $5,000 were transferred from West's bank account over to Lewis's bank account after West had already passed away. However, regarding this case in particular, there's not enough evidence to, to convict him, and so that just kind of remains to be an uh, odd happenstance. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's something I've learned too. Just being on the show, it's just the hap- the odd happenstances of like people with criminal backgrounds mm-hmm. that that has just like just enough to like go to time into possibly being um, just to being a suspect, right? Possibly right. committing these crimes. Yeah, just enough to get you to go. I'm gonna stay away from that person, but not enough to say we can put him away. Yep. And uh, and that piece is what keeps them on the razor's edge of being like, dang it, if they don't sound suspicious and related to this incident. But the bank account in the letter, as you can imagine, did not actually belong to Lewis, but rather, oddly enough, his wife's boss, Frederick McKayhee. So this is where you start to go, Okay, well, why would you give your own bank account with your identity attached to it? Well, here it is in his. But apparently, Lewis's wife, Leanne, worked at a travel agency, and her boss owed her $511 after her paycheck had bounced. So they tried to take the boss to court, and ultimately that wage claim hearing went unsuccessfully. So because of this, it is believed that the Lewis couple wanted revenge against McKayhee, i.e. trying to frame him by saying, ransom letter, bank account, blah, blah, blah. Mm, yeah, there's motive there. Mm-hmm. Strong motive. Also, damn, take someone to court for like 500 bucks. 500 bucks, man. I, I don't know what their, you know, what what their living status is or, or the living status, yeah, what think, their working like, status is. But like, you know, you're probably not going into court without representation. So then like the lawyers probably, I mean, I'm sure they're trying to sue for 500 plus at that point. But man, they must have just lost out on a ton more money and time. Right. I, I think, you know, suing for the 500 is whatever. I think trying to blackmail somebody or imply that the boss is a murderer as the retaliation and looking mm-hmm. for ransom i think that is maybe a bit overcorrective <laughs> yeah. but um but hey we have a handwritten letter so we can look at that and it turns out that the handwriting in the J letter also matched another letter that lewis had written oddly enough this letter went to ronald reagan now what was in this letter None other than the material that says he was threatening to crash remote control airplanes into the White House if there was not a huge taxation overhaul. So this guy is not looking good. It's not a good look. Not it's a good really, look. It's, it's not. Mm. Two letters. One claiming that they're a murderer looking for money with their boss's or their wife's boss bank account. The other one saying, I'm going to fly remote control planes. What? Little like RC planes what? or something into the White House. I don't. I don't know. Or maybe proper planes on remote control. I don't know. But clearly this person is troubled. I don't know so far if they're actually... How they're connected. But we'll get into that. Because, uh, well, let's just dive into it right now. The couple were on the run, apparently, for credit card fraud. Using fake names. And this whole pattern lasted for over a year. In the Chicago area. 
So here's where we finally have some tangible, okay, they are in Chicago. Here's maybe how they're connected outside of being problematic people. However, it should be noted that they moved away from Chicago to go to New York 25 days before these murders kicked off. Now, this doesn't change the fact that they could come mm. back to the city, yeah. you know, temporarily. And it is worth noting that the man seen in that CCTV image that I talked about earlier, the one that was oh. supposedly looking at Paula Prince, oh. does resemble, uh, you know, James Lewis to a bit of a degree. Now, I don't know if this is connecting dots that shouldn't exist. This is a compelling person to look at. I just, I still need more tangible. You need more than that. Yeah, yeah. There, there needs to be more connective tissue between this and the crime at hand. Yes, problematic person. Yes, the letter claiming that they're a part of this this crime spree. But if it's a revenge letter, it's really muddy here. Yeah, I mean, and sure, it, it is nice to sit here and go, it looks and resembles said person, but I mean, it's a white guy with a beard mm-hmm in a blurry photo right yeah well investigators could ultimately not confirm that james lewis had poisoned the tylenol however doesn't change the fact that he was trying to extort people so he was charged with extortion as a result of both of these letters that we discussed while in prison he gave police instructions and drawings on how one might inject pills with poison I don't know why. Maybe if what? they're away for life, they're just saying, screw it. I might as well claim this as my what? own. Odd. Odd. We've definitely seen this before. Someone <laughs> goes to jail. Yeah. And they go, by the way, I did it. And then you you just don't know, though. Like, what in the what? Yeah. Um, uh, but remember, it's it. this guy has a demonstrated pattern of not really being in the right headspace just due to some of the activities that they've been up to. Yeah, and then but then the flip side of that is like that's the proper headspace to do something this You're ridiculous. exactly right. Um the description that he gave for how the pills were poisoned. Uh-huh. Does that line up? I mean, I'm sure there's only like a handful of ways to do it, like a, a syringe, but I don't know if they know exactly how it was done. Oh, Only that true. it was done. And so the fact yeah, that he's providing true. a way that does look compelling or a, a way to do it in the first place. It's not like, um, you know, the fact that he's just, here's how I would do it or here's how you would right. do it. I think that's enough. But I don't know. Like, I don't know. I won't wager on how I would go about injecting something with something. Mm -hmm, but uh, mm -hmm. anybody could say it, I guess, or wager, wager a guess. But ultimately, right... Uh, and let's put ultimately in the uh, task force dictionary. Uh, ultimately, in 2009, the FBI reopened the Tylenol murders case because of advancements in forensic technology, as well as the fact that it was the 25th anniversary. Now, I will say it's probably more due to the former and not so much the latter because it being an anniversary is no reason to open a case. Hey, let's celebrate. <laughs> yeah. It's been, it's been a 25 <laughs> years. Crack open those dusty files. But it was subsequently the 25th anniversary around that time. Oof. And it just doesn't seem like anything has come up since in terms no. of like a solution to this case. Not oh. not for not not as far as Lewis is concerned. Uh, they searched his home. They took a few items, but ultimately, there it is again. No information about this has been released. So he remains to be a suspect. But um, I don't know. He's uh, he's loosely correlated, and he is compelling as a as a suspect. But I don't know if we've got our guy here. Could you imagine if it was this person and they've just been saying that it's them the whole time and they're just... I hate that thought. That's, that's, <laughs> I hate right? That. I hate that because it's so 
I don't yeah. know, man. I feel like half the people we di- we discuss in true crime just straight up say, yeah, it was me. Yep. Or there's something that is just damning. And you're like, okay, it's definitely them because of this thing alone. But, you know, you can't just go arresting people willy nilly. You gotta, you gotta have your ducks in a row, lest they be an innocent person. And then also very bad luck if you go, hey, we got the person. And then it happens again. It happens again. And somebody, uh. you know, heaven forbid it happens again but then also happens again and the person's just like look it was me here's like the hard evidence right right oh man reminds me of uh making a murderer on netflix something kind of similar happened but in the opposite direction but i don't know man it's uh it's interesting and the fact that there are copycats are only muddying the waters because then again if, if you did get the right person and you did put them away doesn't stop the crime from happening very nearly identically somewhere else mm-hmm But yeah, let's talk about another interesting suspect here. A dock worker named Roger Arnold, who was overheard in a bar saying how easy it would be to poison someone with cyanide. He ended up having strange connections, actually, to some of the victims. Arnold happened to work at a jewel warehouse with Mary Reiner's father, Mary Reiner being one of the victims I outlined earlier. Jewel, just for those who aren't aware, it's a grocery store chain primarily in the Illinois area. So... Here we have a man who has a relationship to a victim and has proximity to Tylenol in convenience stores, right? Adam Janis, who also purchased those Tylenols, who was also a victim, purchased that Tylenol from a Jewel convenience store. There's another thread of relation. Reiner purchased their Tylenol from a convenience store across the street from where Arnold's wife was supposedly staying in a psychiatric facility. So a place that Arnold would frequent to visit his wife who was in care. So if it's across the street, what? there's the Just, possibility. Yeah, well, man, it would I'd do it a mile away. Like miles, states, countries away. You know what I mean? Like across the street. Right. Yeah. <sighs> you know what? Like, And the thing that's missing, you know, here, and the thing that I didn't mention that was missing with James Lewis is his motive. Is it just chaos? Is it just being evil, doing bad things? Or what would be the motive that helps kind of not... Yes, sure, there's some tangential evidence here that might be like, okay, he had the opportunity, but then like having a motive really helps pull this all together. But you don't always need it, I suppose. Um, But yeah. Yeah, you'd hope that there is, right? I mean, instead of someone just going, eh, it's one to cause a ruckus. Right, because that's the most frightening crime of all is when it's just for the sake of it. But um, in Arnold's apartment, investigators discovered crime manuals and chemistry equipment, including potassium carbonate. However, there was no presence of cyanide. So, yeah, this guy's talking about how easy it is to poison people with cyanide. He's, he's got opportunity here. He's got some weird stuff in his apartment. But uh, no oh, concrete, why? like, there's the cyanide. Let's pin it on this guy. It's, why are uh, people so suspicious? I like, don't know, man. God. What are you doing? What are you what doing are you with doing? all that stuff? And then also seeing that in a bar. And what are you doing? Yeah, people be wild out here. Crazy. Well, when it came down to it, Arnold refused a lie detector test and became overwhelmed with the investigation. I bet he did, because he's seemingly got something up his sleeve. But in 1983... He shot and killed a random person, John Stanisha, who uh, Arnold had mistakenly thought was the bar owner, the person that reported his comments to the police, the person who would have kicked off the investigation for 
telling on him to the police for reporting him, I should say. It still ultimately did something super... Exactly. Regardless of how this shakes out, regardless of this person's involvement, they're problematic. They did something problematic. And again, you know, the investigation, whether it was warranted or not, was the stressor that really kicked this all off. And, And so he's like, you're the bar owner. You reported me. I'm taking my frustrations out on you. But long story short, when it comes to Roger Arnold, there's no real evidence that he poisoned the pills. There's no way to truly put this on him. So we have yet another interesting suspect that has some ties to the crime and definitely some problematic behavior, but no way to really uh, to, to really attribute this to them. Yeah, and uh, man, and it's a saying, you know, that won't hold up in court. It's just like, even before the, you know, if you're looking at before the committed murder, it's just like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's very suspicious, very odd. And um, probably deserving of locking the person up in a way, but you can't just do that out of like because right. the person's super suspicious and very well. Not odd a good look, dude. Like not a good like, yeah, looking. Like on one hand, you're like, well, he's reacting to the stress that he was put under unfairly because of this report. But on the other hand, you could also say, well, dang, like this guy almost got caught because he was being flippant with his information, and that was reported, so he was angry about that. It's the problem is you can really look at this through a lot of different lenses and um but yeah either way problematic dude you can't just be doing that stuff man dude ultimately uh messed up again and then got locked away for it yep well the uh the last suspect that i want to dive deep on is actually the unabomber ted kaczynski what yeah he was considered a suspect now it's going to make sense in a lot of ways but in other ways i want to dive in and really kind of dissect this one you know he's from the chicago area And that was actually the location of his first bombing attack in 1978. His parents also owned a home in the Chicago suburbs around the time that this all went down in 1982, and he actually visited periodically. So there is opportunity here. He's in the area. He has already committed crimes. The possibility is there. Now, there's another theory here that I want to take a sidestep into. Now, this is coming from the BuzzFeed Unsolved guys. Fantastic boys. Fredo, you and I had the opportunity to meet them at the Stanley Hotel that we uh, did. a few years ago. We put a ghost rock in their pocket. We put a ghost rock in their pocket. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I forgot about that. But yeah, fine fellows. And I want to give them credit to this piece of the theory. But they kind of discussed in their video about this on another unofficial victim to the Tylenol murders that happened in Sheridan. Now that is fact. This part is fact. J. Adam Mitchell, a 19-year-old janitor, died from extra-strength Tylenol laced with cyanide in July of 1982. This is leading into the Chicago kills right at the end of 1982. Now, the theory that the BuzzFeed Unsolved Boys put out is that this was on the way to Kaczynski's cabin in Rancho Cordova, California. I kind of wanted to dive into this because I think it's a very interesting theory that they came up with. Now, when you use Google Maps to figure out the route between Rancho Cordova, California, and Chicago, Illinois, interestingly enough, the second most preferred route, it adds two hours, but it is the second most preferred route, takes you kind of close to Sheridan, Wyoming. If you took that route, it would add two hours to your major trip, but then if you went to Sheridan, Wyoming itself, it would add yet another two hours. So it's not super out of the way, but it is... Somewhat plausible that this Tylenol poisoning could have been related to the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, and the Chicago occurrences. 
Another couple interesting facts as I was looking into this is that Sheridan, Wyoming, as the car would drive on that route, is almost exactly in between Chicago and where Kaczynski's cabin was in California. And so maybe on that drive, they stopped in Wyoming, stopped in Sheridan or what have you, did this and then continued on to Chicago. It's hard to say, but again, if you're if you're considering the theory that it is the Unabomber who is behind this, I wanted to consider their piece of the theory that maybe this is this is the person that can help loop in this Wyoming death to to kind of lock this all together. I'd be very interested in knowing and I don't even know if there's an average out there, but like what percentage of killers like switch up their methods, you know? Because That's a good question. Yeah, cuz I I would think that or do, from what I hear in like news and media and all that kind of stuff, so take it with a grain of salt that like killers have their method of how they do it and that's how they usually proceed and with the with the murders or killings and crimes etc but like everyone kind of has like their patterns that they do and they stick to and right. they tend to deviate from them so it'd be very interesting granted not saying that it's not something that would happen but it'd be interesting you know if like hey i have this one pattern but i got this kind of slide pattern that i'm right. doing over here this little side thing that's just like honestly very different Right, very different. I mean, it's in it's in their name, right? The, or at least how they're referred to as the Unabomber. Uh, that was their M.O. And to go into a poisoning direction is definitely a totally different route. It's not common to see that, like you're saying. My thinking is maybe, and again, I'm, I'm really entertaining the, the theory that the boys put out. And, and I'm thinking like, you know, maybe this was a test. Maybe this was like something else you could do along the way and maybe fly under the radar. And when it worked and got away with it, maybe this was like, maybe this is another way I can just perpetuate some crime and, and just ultimately just be a bad person and end mm-hmm. people's lives. I, I don't know. It is a little bit far-fetched. I do want to say that. It's, it's hard to say, but it, it's compelling that they tried to take this unofficial victim of the Chicago Tylenol murders out in Wyoming and try to loop it into one of the suspects. I think that that is, is very interesting to consider. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, it's a, it's a cool little like uh, deviation from that, you know, storyline of the Unibomber. Uh, the Unibomber. Mm-hmm. Oh man, it'd, just, it'd be, it'd just be wild. Not it would be very it's wild. It's not yeah. far-fetched at all, but it'd just be wild to be like, I do this crazy thing and then, eh, I'm gonna deviate and do this a little bit right whoa right so very twisted very twisted and it's also hard to kind of use a suspect to retroactively wrap up the crime and and it's it's hard to go the opposite direction right but i don't know it's it's very creative the way they were thinking in both directions to try to put together i mean this is an unsolved crime and so you got to think outside the box and it's interesting but a couple other pieces came up when the case was reopened and in 2011 the FBI requested DNA from Kaczynski so they could really dive in here and and investigate him as a suspect now he said he would provide his DNA voluntarily if they didn't sell his belongings in an auction so they hold all of his belongings they hold his cabin and everything uh, in FBI custody And the reason why they were selling his items were to raise money for the reparations, the money that he owed to the families and victims of his crimes. And he was saying the reason why he would be voluntary with his DNA delivery is because he didn't do it. And Kaczynski actually said, quote, some of the evidence seized from my cabin in 1996 may turn out to be important, end quote, if there was a match. 
basically, if his DNA for some reason rang a positive correlation to the Chicago uh, person, then he would say, boom, take a look at the evidence in my cabin. It wasn't me. They're trying to pin this on me so they can say that they closed this case. But he's he's pretty vehement about like, no, take my DNA, just don't sell my stuff. Well, it doesn't matter. They ultimately sold his stuff in auction and nothing really ended up coming out regarding his DNA or his involvement with this crime. So I don't know. It's a, it's a weird situation. Yeah, I didn't think anything would come up from the DNA. And obviously, yeah. like if they did find something, you think that, you know, they'd be very public about it. Because right. A win for the authorities or the company or whatnot. Obviously, the news just wants to report on everything. They just want content. But, like, you'd taunt that and flaunt that all over the place if you were, like, very confident, you know, close to 100% that, like, we've got this person. Like, you put that out there if you're the authorities, especially if you're the company. Yep. I'm pretty sure it was just because he is one of the suspects, well-known, still alive, they're like, reopen the case. Let's dive in here. Let's get your DNA. And he was saying, like, let me just quote him for a second. He said, quote, I have never even possessed any potassium cyanide, but even on the assumption that the FBI is entirely honest, an assumption I am unwilling to make, partial DNA profiles can throw suspicion on a person who are entirely innocent. Yes, this man might be a killer, but he's not wrong in this case. And so in a way he's like, listen, I might've done these things, but I did not do that one. And I think that the FBI is being dishonest with me. I think they're going to try to pin this on me so they can say they closed it. Damn. So here's me saying, I'll give my DNA voluntarily. Let investigators have access to my goods, the things that you took as evidence of my uh, innocence in this case, right? So that way, in case I do come up positive and you claim that I can prove myself innocent in the court of law. Now, again, the auction went ahead as scheduled. Items were sold off left and right. And Jillian, myself, Christian, we all really kind of dove into this DNA results because I'm like, this is a big thing. And when you look at it, there's a bunch of articles in May of 2011 saying, yes, they're getting the Unabomber's DNA. Yes, he's volunteering it, blah, 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 blah. But nothing, no results came of this. It's almost like it just went cold. So I don't know if it's because they didn't have a positive ID. I don't know if it's because they dropped it. But ultimately, this, in my mind, really distances the Unabomber as a suspect. Not a good guy by any means, but no, not at all, this case probably not. Yeah, a suspect probably not anymore. tied to this. Yeah, but interesting, man. I I thought that, uh, you know, it was a very interesting suspect to consider, especially like you were saying, man. It's a totally different crime, totally different mo, and uh, but the way it could could kind of work out is um, it's compelling to say the least. That would have been just absolutely insane. You know what I mean? But yeah. my goodness, like going back, like. The fear of, of like, oh my goodness, if I give them my DNA, they could pin it on me. If I don't, then they could still pin it on me. So which way do I think? Oh, right. God, that's such a terrible situation to be in. Well, I mean, they're in jail for life, so it's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, but I, I mean, I don't know what their motive was outside of like, I don't like the FBI and I don't want to be, you know, I don't want a crime pinned to me that doesn't belong. I don't know what this guy's up to. Clearly, right. he's, he's evil uh, and he's in jail, and that's all that really matters here. But, um, yep, with regards to this crime in particular, not super sure about that one. But some interesting suspects, and we have some other smaller theories that I do want to kind of uh, talk about here before we close out. But, yeah. you know, some do find it strange that the Tylenol factories were not investigated by police. You know, Johnson & Johnson is coming forward claiming, hey, no, we looked and it's not in our, our factories. 
The fact that there was only 50 does seem to say, sure, that, that follows. We tested 10 million capsules, but it still is strange that the police didn't investigate the, uh, the manufacturers. And they wonder if maybe, despite that, only 50 were tampered with. Did they actually occur at the factories? Is someone getting away with this crime? Maybe there was a cover-up here. Ew. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Like, you think Johnson & Johnson would be like... Not to say that they they were the ones that were like, mm don't step in here. But you think that they'd be like, come on in. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Whatever you need. Yeah. We got you, you. You think you would want to prove your innocence uh, or your non-culpability. That's a word. To say... Nah, we're, it's not us. Not us. To save to save themselves as a company, but with the, that's yeah, with the amount of money that you're losing, you think you just do anything and everything to catch that person and find out what the source of this issue was. Yep, yep. Well, and then the uh, the next two theories are ones that you and I kind of had throughout the episode. One being that a lot of people do still seem to claim that this was from a person or a group of people that might have wanted to bring down the Johnson & Johnson stock in particular, and that they did have some success because of, you know, the 35% down to 8% kind of market share thing. But then others kind of think that this was more personal, that whoever the killer was knew at least one of the victims and poisoned other pills to make this look more random than a murder against one person in particular. And remember, there, there were those copycat ones like Ms. Nickel, who I outlined earlier, who That's just so annoying. did something like that. It's very it's annoying. So, it's just so annoying. People are just like, all right, we're going to copy. Because it just makes it so much easier. It's like, it makes the case so difficult. To solve. Very. And mm -hmm. as if it wasn't difficult already. Yep. But yeah, there's just so many different angles, you know, like, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about it. And I just want, you know, bring it up again. But yeah, I mean... There's so many different angles of where it could be and who's at fault and people stepping forward and whether or not it was kind of like this, you know, the, the big mass killings were a scapegoat for someone that was just trying to nail one person in particular. Oh, man, this is a fascinating case. It's deeply fascinating. And regardless of how you feel regarding the suspects or regarding the ongoings of the case, you can't deny the fact that it has had lasting implications on our lives all the way up to today. I mean, I know we talked about Halloween candy and stuff, but as a result of the Chicago Tylenol murders, you know, we have tamper-proof seals introduced by the FDA and Johnson & Johnson. That way you know that when it comes to medication, you know it hasn't been tampered with. They also reinvented the gel capsule casing so that way it could become much more difficult to puncture. I don't know if you've ever squeezed one of those things, but they're quite hard now. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're pretty hard. Yeah, and so that would make it obvious if some some tampering had occurred, right? They wouldn't seal themselves back up. It would be harder to melt them. Like You would just know because it would either be leaking or it would look weird. Like You would just know that the product itself had been tampered, let alone by the tamper seal. Yeah, but how many people are, like, inspecting the tablet before they ingest it? You know what I mean? I like, mean, I, you know, I'll take a quick glance. It's going in my body. I'll be like, well, that's good. That ain't me. I'm not inspecting <laughs> it, but, but I think you would I think you would notice if it was like, why is this, like, half empty or why is this wet? Mm -hmm. They're very smooth because of the way they're manufactured. And if there was, like, a rough spot or, like, a flat spot or some sort of oddity with it, you would you would start to go, well, that's odd because... 99 out of 100 times, if not more, probably more, it ain't like that. So yeah. basically they really kind of tried to restructure the process to make sure that this couldn't happen again. 
and the government actually made product tampering a federal crime so that way anytime this would ever happen again they could be charged with that uh, and it would stop any sort of um, copycats from from attempting this in the future because it would have more established high level punishment than just hey you're going to jail or yeah, whatever right, i don't know rightfully so right so yeah man this is just one of those times you, you see uh, labels on coffee cups that are like caution hot. You look at products that have, hey, this these Oreos haven't been opened yet. You know, you see those things and you go, oh, okay. But it's it's really interesting when you think of like the lawsuits that led to them, let alone a spree of unfortunate murders that happened in the 80s that led to the development of some of those things. It's it's wild how these the actions of a few can affect the many. It's also deeply fascinating. Yeah just changes the whole way things are done yeah mm-hmm well that is the chicago tylenol murders damn um any other last minute thoughts before we uh we close this one out officially Freds? um any areas that you would love to have gone back and looked into if you were a a man on the a, a bloodhound on the scene yeah <laughs> nose on the scene it's i would have wanted to dive deeper into the Johnson and Johnson factories and stuff. I don't think that there would have been anything there, but obviously cover all angles. hundred percent, dude, you got to cover um, all those bases. I think that's a great point. I think I go back and do that, but man, this is a, you know, we've, I think we've, it's been a handful of episodes that we've stepped away from like true crime. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this, this may remember how, how fascinating these are. Yeah. And in another way, like an odd way, it's kind of nice to have, at least somewhat more. I mean, this one has a lot more tangible, concrete evidence that I know you love. But when we talk about cryptids or the supernatural, it becomes a little bit harder to diagnose what the theories or what the solution or what the answer is because of that lack of evidence. But that's one thing that, despite the dark nature of true crime, that I do appreciate is that there's more evidence there. So you feel you can at least get closer to resolving mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and maybe because of that, you can protect future citizens, uh, right? Like with the advent of the tamper-proof seals and everything here. I think it'd be very interesting to see it like, you know, 10, 15 years from now, if the crimes start becoming more digital based. Ooh, hacking and stuff. I, man, that's happening right now. I believe it. It's just, we're not going to know for another couple of years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if, if a lot of the crimes start shifting to like, oh, this, this, there's another digital crime. Yeah, man. I mean, you you can even think of like the more pedestrian things, right? Like CAPTCHAs to prove that you're a human when you go to a yeah. website or uh, password authentications and, and you know, services like LastPass or whatever where you can save yourself. I mean, there's already a lot of like colloquial uh, things that you, I don't know if that's the right word, but there's a lot of like common things that we use that could have some pretty uh, interesting origins when you really start to look at it. Mm-hmm. Just a passing thought. Oh, man. We're going to have to dive into cybercrime here more. I, oh, yeah, we love will. it. <laughs> all right. Well, that is uh, that is the Chicago Tylenol murders. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, we will be back here, Fredo, next Monday for yet another unsolved mystery. Yeah, we will. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.